We're in our third week of this uh, series uh, as we head into the season of Advent, Prepare for Christmas. And last week, we turned our attention to this little town of Bethlehem and looked at some of the stories that have taken place in this little part of Israel. And, And last week, the story, if you remember, was the story of Ruth. And in the very final lines of the book of Ruth, the author connects us into this greater story of redemption as it's unfolding by noting that that Ruth and Boaz had a baby. His name was Obed, and, and we see kind of a genealogy laid out there, and Obed became the father of his son, Jesse. And this morning, our text is going to take us to look at Jesse and his own sons in week number three of this series. The title of our message this morning is Surprising Joy, Surprising Joy. So as I talked about last week from the book of Ruth, and I I felt pretty good. I I texted with uh, my friend Isaac. If you remember, he's a a pastor over in Bethany, Missouri, and we were talking a little bit about our Sundays, and I said, yeah, I preached, you know, this overview of the book of Ruth, and got it done in like 38 minutes. I'm feeling pretty good about myself, and he's like, yeah, that's awesome, man. Great job, you know, and everything. I'm like, yeah, you know, see, we get excited about stuff like that. I don't know how much the congregation felt excited about my 38-minute overview of Ruth, but... I felt like I did a good job getting it all in there, so much in that great story. But last week, that's where we were in the text, and we we saw at the very end of the book, again, how it kind of connects to this genealogy and the the line after Ruth and and Boaz. Now, you remember at the very start of that sermon, I mentioned that that story unfolds very close to the end of the time of the judges in Israel's history. And right about a generation after Ruth and Boaz's story, we find the life and the ministry of the last of those judges in that era, a man named Samuel. Now, Samuel's story is absolutely amazing, and and I'm really, really tempted to talk a lot about Samuel today, but I'm going to try to kind of rein that in, because for the sake of this morning and this message in our Advent theme, I want us to focus on just this one period in Samuel's ministry. One of the unique things that Samuel did that kind of set him apart from all the other judges that that were there in the time of, of Israel's history was that as this last of the judges, he was the one who oversaw and really kind of shifted everything into this monarchy, having a, a king rather than various judges who were ruling over Israel as a unified nation. And that all came about, if you're familiar with, with kind of the, the broad strokes of the story of Scripture, because the people of God, in really their own ignorance and their own kind of selfish desires, were looking at all the other nations around them, how they had kings, they had people who were ruling over them, and they said, we want to be like them. We, we think that looks great to have you know, a big, strong warrior king who they can look up to and, and follow, and so we want that. And, and God told Samuel, okay, this won't be good for them. In fact, they're going to learn how bad this is. Here are the things that are going to happen. But you will go, Samuel, and you will anoint for them a king. And the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. Now, Saul, again, if you're familiar with him, outwardly he looks like a great fit for a king. He is, the the text tells us, uh, the guy who looks like he should be a king. And he really accomplishes some amazing and incredible feats for this little nation of Israel as they face a lot stronger nations at that point in their history. But Saul's downfall comes from his sinful neglect to submit to God's commands. Now again, Saul's got a, a big story and a lot of things we could look at in his life, but to kind of compress who Saul was in the summation of his story for this sermon, what we find from scripture is that Saul gave into doing things his own way. 
He, he kind of imbibed that, that ethos of the day. Like I said last week, the time of the judges is noted for the repeated refrain throughout that book that tells us the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, right? Rather than look at things from God's perspective, follow God's commands and what God has said, they said, no, this seems good to us. This looks like something that I want to do. And that's what they just did. And so the result is that in 1 Samuel, which is where we'll be today, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God sends Samuel. I remember, he's the one who anointed Saul to be king in the first place. But now, God sends him to go to Saul and tell him, because of your sin, because of how you have acted, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you, and you will be replaced by another. And so Samuel goes and he does what God says in that chapter and then he leaves Saul and he heads to a different city and he feels deep, great sadness over the sin of Saul and the consequences that Israel are going to face as a nation. So that's kind of the background to our text this morning. If you have your Bible and you're in 1 Samuel, turn to chapter 16 where we're going to pick up in the text today. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we'll start in verse 1. We read, Now Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, these are God's words to Samuel shortly after sending him to deliver that message to Saul. Hey, God has rejected you. He's going to replace you with another. Then God says to Samuel, now I want you to go And I will show you this new king who you are to anoint. So what I want us to to kind of see as we start into this this morning is that God's plan for the future is unfolding here. And it's not at all being stopped by Saul's failure, right? Like, in fact, it was actually always part of God's plan to, to use Saul's failure to bring about this particular line that would lead to King David eventually being put on the throne and his descendants then ruling over Israel. But in the moment of this text, Samuel can't see any of that. You and I, we get to look back. We get to see the whole story. If you want to know how this unfolds, you want to know what takes place next, you can just keep reading, right? But, but Samuel's living in the moment. And he can't see what it is that God is doing. And so we know from the text he's lamenting and he's feeling sad. He's grieving over what has taken place because he doesn't know what is to come next. But God isn't like that. He's ready to move things forward. He's ready to, to go into the future plans that he has to unfold. So thinking about this, this Advent season, this is something for us to really keep in mind as we go about celebrating this time and these events leading up to the incarnation of Christ. What we're thinking about in this entire season is not just the events that took place on some random night, as glorious and wonderful as that night was, it wasn't just a standalone thing in history. The events that we celebrate was the unfolding of this perfect plan of God that had been, according to Ephesians 1, 4, established before the foundation of the world, that came in the exact right and perfect moment at the fullness of time, Scripture tells us. Then, after all these things had been done, all these things had been worked together by God's hand, Jesus Christ came. He took on flesh. He enters this world to come and accomplish perfect redemption for his people. The story of this whole season is the crescendo of all these events that are taking place throughout the history of Israel, being worked together by the sovereign hand of God's providence to fulfill the plan of God just as he determined. 
And so what I love about using resources this time of year, using Advent devotionals like the ones we, we recommend out on the, the resource center counter or out on the display in the foyer, is that if you use a good Advent devotional this time of year, what it will do most likely is start not on Christmas morning and just talk about that for 25 days, but it'll start way back in the Old Testament and show you how all these events throughout the history of Israel were building up and building up and showing in foreshadows and little previews what it would mean when the Christ would finally come. And so this time of year gives us a a great opportunity to think about the big picture of things and see how little events like this event right here, this little snapshot of one moment in the ministry of Samuel, actually connects us to Jesus and his coming in the future. So notice here, again, that there's clarity in God's statement when he talks to Samuel, right? He says, hey, this is what I want you to go do. And he says, with absolute certainty, I have, notice he says, I've already done this. I've already been at work, Samuel. You couldn't see what I've been doing for the last several years here. You didn't know my plan. When you anointed Saul and you thought he would be the king of Israel and his sons would take over, you didn't know I had been working already because I have provided for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. God is not ever stuck thinking about the past and the what-ifs that you and I get so hung up on, right? God's not not one who ever wishes things were different. He could just go back and relive and, and redo some things or, you know, change them or even just go back and recapture them. God doesn't think about the glory days as days gone by. But sometimes we do, especially in the holiday season. I think this is a temptation for us, right? It's a temptation for me. We're prone to, to sometimes kind of idealizing the past and trying to go recapture certain moments, certain feelings, certain experiences that we have had before. And we're encouraged to do that this time of year, right? I mean, I, I love the, the, the classic Christmas song, White Christmas, right? But what's it talking about? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas like the ones I used to know because they were so much better than the one I've got right now. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the whole point of the song, right? They're thinking about looking back and going, oh, it was so great what we had back there. But see, God never, never does that. He doesn't ever look back and go, man, things were so great when I had Israel there in the nation. Oh, man, things were so great when the people were doing this thing. Things were so much better in the world when X, Y, or Z was taking place. God isn't ever hung up with being stuck looking backwards. He's a God who has a plan that's unfolding in the future. And so he's ready in this instance, though Samuel can't see it. Samuel's stuck thinking, oh, it was so great. We had a king. He was going to lead us all this great promise. God says, no, I have a plan for the future. Trust me and go and do as I have said. So God calls Samuel, turn your attention ahead. Don't live in the past, but take a step of obedience for the future. And look at the result in verse 2 here. But Samuel said to God, but how can I go? For if Saul hears of this, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. So Samuel did what Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace I come. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice 
as well. So in these few verses, we get Samuel, right, who's got this, again, big life story, and we could spend all of this sermon talking about Samuel and the great things that happened through his life. But in this verse, we get him in our little town of Bethlehem, and I want to focus on this moment of his ministry. He comes into this city. He seeks out Jesse, the son of Obed, right, the the grandson of Ruth and Boaz from our, our story last week, and he comes on this mission to find and anoint a new king for Israel, one who God has already said he has provided for himself, but this task, despite the clarity with which God gave it to him, this task causes fear in Samuel, right? And it causes fear in the elders of the city who come out too, right? Why are, is everyone afraid? Because what Samuel's coming to do is a treasonous act against a king who's in charge, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what they're afraid of. Saul is going to hear Samuel has come and he's going to anoint a new king and Saul's going to come kill us all. Because that's what a king whose power is threatened by a rising rival would come and do. <laughs> There's a lot to fear here for these people. And you and I can relate to that, can't we? I mean, to, to, to move forward into the future, to focus on things ahead and try to let go of the things of the past, how things used to be, that's really scary and really hard for a lot of us to do. That can cause a lot of fear. And sometimes the idea of change and sometimes the idea of things being different, sometimes the things of what may come ahead around the corner can almost paralyze us. Maybe they make us angry about changes. Why can't things just be the way they've always been? That can lead some of us to stubbornly try and fight against the future and hold on to the past. I mean, anyone else done this? I've done this in my life, right? But God tells Samuel exactly what he wants to do, and it's not, let's go back, let's go back to how great things were. It's, let's move forward into this plan that I have for the future. So Samuel... Again, we could talk a lot about him, but he stands out as the, the last of the judges and the start of the era of the prophets who are going to arise after him during the time of the kings of Israel. And while his story is filled with incredible things, a miraculous start and so many powerful moments and these major successes and some failures, in the end, you know how Samuel is remembered by the church? He's remembered as a man of faith, right? He makes the list in Hebrews chapter 11. That's pretty high recognition. The reason we look at Samuel and we say, this was a faithful man, this was a man who did what God wanted him to do, is because in a moment like this, when it was difficult, when it was scary, when the future seemed bleak and like, I'd rather go backwards, Samuel chose to step forward into the future that God had. He obeyed him and he listened to what God said. So let that sink into our hearts and our minds today. You and I, just like Samuel, we must trust God with the future and obey his commands in the present. That's what Samuel did. He said, okay, God, I don't see how it can be better than what we were going for with Saul here. I don't understand how if I go and do this, it'll turn into something good and beautiful. But God, I will trust you with the future and I will obey you and do what you have said. So he, he does, right? He goes to Bethlehem. And he seeks out the family God has told him to do. See, the story of Saul is that he didn't ultimately trust God with the future, so he didn't obey God in his present. That's what led to this situation. Saul chose to ignore the word of God and do what he wanted, to do what he heard the people wanted him to do because he was so fearful of the future without their support, without their love, without them going, yes, yes, we're behind you, Saul, that he said, I'll just do whatever they say is right 
instead of what God has clearly told me to do and how God has said I should act. And the disobedience of Saul is why we remember him as, yeah, the first king of Israel, but the guy who got the kingdom taken from him. But Samuel, like we said, we remember as a man of God. Flawed, yes, but faithful because he trusted God for the future and obeyed him in moments like this. Today we live in a society that I think is just so strikingly similar to Israelite society in these days of the judges. Where the cultural standard of that day was simply that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? And you and I don't have to look very far to find examples of that in our culture, in our day, all around us. If you've been paying any attention to the news at all this week, you know Congress just passed a bill. It was approved in both the Senate and the House, right? And sent to the president to sign, which will probably happen in the next few days, that will enshrine in the legal code of our nation an unbiblical, anti-God definition of marriage and sexual practice. What the government is doing is they're saying, hey, by our authority, by our power, by what we're going to tell you is right and wrong, you can go do whatever you think is right in your own eyes. You don't have to listen to what God says in his word, even though he's very, very clear. Whatever feels right to you, whatever you think is good for you, you have permission to go and do that when it comes to sexual relationships and marriage. Right? This is the day we live in. This is the culture that we are in. So you and I, because of that, we have some decisions we're going to have to make, right? And one response to seeing what's taking place in our culture is to mourn and to be sad. And there's good reason to do that. I mean, 52 years ago, this wasn't even a debate in our culture, right? One of the news releases I was reading about all of this was, was saying how 52 years ago, the whole thing that kicked this off was a gay couple applied for a marriage license and were denied because it was illegal everywhere in the United States. And they're celebrating, here we are, look how much progress we've made in 52 years, it's all changed, and now it's, it's established in our legal code, and they're celebrating, this is great, and I'm saying, this is the day's of the Israelite people where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the judgment of God came upon that civilization, just as it will ours. So we can mourn and we can be sad, but, but that's not going to be enough for us. Because like Samuel, we don't get to stay in that posture forever. It's not enough to just lament for what has been lost in the past. We have to move forward and trust God and obey God with the future. So for Samuel to obey God in this context, it meant risking some very real consequences, right? The charge of treason, the king coming to try and kill him, he knew this could be a really serious thing if I obey God. And for you and I to obey God in our current culture, in our current context, it may mean as we proclaim what is right and wrong according to the scripture, not according to the legal code of the nation. When we say this is what God has said, this is what is right, this is how God has created things, this is what is wrong, this is sin, this is going to bring judgment. When we do that, it may begin to be a much more costly thing for us. But the question is, are we going to step into the future Obeying God step by step, trusting him, obeying him, or are we going to step back like Saul did and say, I don't want to go against the people? I mean, I'll obey God if it's convenient or if it looks to me like it'll work out in my favor. Or are you and I going to say, hey, even in difficult times, even when it may cost us everything, we're going to stand up and be obedient to God? Coming back to Bethlehem here. Samuel decides for the latter path. I will obey God. I will risk everything to do what God has commanded me to do. And so he goes. 
He goes there, he finds Jesse and his sons. And over the next five verses there in the text, we read that seven of Jesse's sons are brought before Samuel to, to find out who's the one that, that God has selected. And Samuel's initial thoughts, and as these boys are brought before him and passing through, is he's looking who's going to be the next king by, by trying to figure out who looks the part of the king, right? He was looking at outward appearance. Who looks the most kingly? That's got to be the guy that God has already been preparing and already raised up, right? And to be fair to Samuel, this is actually what set Saul apart when Saul was chosen, right? If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, we learn Saul's qualifications were he was from a wealthy family, he was handsome, he was strong, and his defining feature was he was a head taller than every other Israelite. Put simply, he just looked the part of a king, <laughs> right? So when Samuel is sent, hey, you want to find another king among Jesse's sons, and the first one comes by, and he's tall and strong and handsome, and, and Samuel sees him, he goes, well, there, there, this must be the guy. But one after another after another, God says, no, he is not the one. I have rejected him. And on it goes into verse 11. After seven sons, Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? <laughs> You've got no, you no one else to walk by. God said no to all of these. And Jesse says, <clears throat> there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. So Je Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent him and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And Yahweh said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, unfortunately, today, I have, to, I have to break my streak from the last couple of weeks. I don't have a photo of me in Israel standing at the place where uh, David was anointed. I, and, and I'm not actually exactly sure which hill David would have been keeping, keeping the, the, the sheep on. We, we don't know those locations the way we know some others. But likely, since we, we drove around all of Bethlehem and, and spent several days there, I, I probably saw the general area, but who knows if there's a building there or something is different. So we're just, we're not sure. But that's okay, because the point is not, I've seen the physical place. The point is, what took place here, selecting this very unlikely shepherd boy, ends up being part of God's great plan being seen by the people of God. Now, normally, if, if you've heard this text preached before, right, we're going to kind of focus in now on David and draw a couple, couple important truths out. So first, we would say, you know, hey, notice how David's overlooked by everyone else, right? I mean, he's the youngest, and he's the smallest of his brothers. And so nobody, not his father, not his siblings, nobody thought David's going to be the guy. In fact, they were so sure David's not the guy, right? They just left him out in the field with the sheep, right? They didn't even bother to, to say, hey, come meet Samuel. Come, come worship Yahweh with us. They're like, eh, David, no shot. Leave him out there so we can go and enjoy, right? Clearly, nobody expects David to be the one. He doesn't stand out from birth, right? No one thought this is the guy who, who's going to be a key part of God's grand plan for the redemption of his people. They just thought he's the little guy, send him out to tend the sheep on the hills outside of Bethlehem. But that just shows how great and glorious God and his ways really are, right? But by choosing David, there in the town of Bethlehem, we, we know God sees the smallest places. He knows the least of us. And he delights in choosing those whose, in human wisdom, we would never select. <laughs> I 
take encouragement from that when I read this story, right? Because I'm a guy who grew up in a small town. My family name, it's not only hard to pronounce, but, but it's not filled with great heroics. Or, and nobody, nobody was like, oh, that kid when he was born. I tell my kids all the time, everybody shut down and had a big party when I was born, which is true, but that's just because it was Thanksgiving Day that year. Um, it wasn't because of me, <laughs> right? Nobody thought that's the guy. He's, God's going to do great, amazing things with him. I was just a guy from a small town, an unknown family, and now I live in an even smaller town. <laughs> so I take comfort in this. I'm like, God sees. He knows, and he uses people in situations like this. Right? I, the big idea, I think, in this text is that God's plans are never hindered by the things we may dis- think disqualify us, right? God chose Bethlehem. God chose David. And second, we usually focus in on the fact that it was not David's external appearance that mattered most. Now, Samuel notices here that David was, was ruddy, which means red, literally, in, in the Hebrew. So either it's a reference to the, his hair color, he had some red hair, or he was kind of sunburnt from being out working on the fields with the sheep. Either way, it describes him as ruddy and says he has beautiful eyes and was handsome. And I think that's put in there not only to give us a little bit of a description of who David is, but to point out that when Samuel looked at him, Samuel saw something externally, but Samuel had just been told no by God for seven other brothers who were like David, except they were stronger, they were older, they were more experienced, they were taller, and God said in each case, no, it's not about the physical appearance. So when he looked at this guy, he says, I don't know, I can't tell by the physical appearance. It takes God saying to him, He is the one. Because the qualification that God had in mind wasn't something Samuel could see, right? In verse 7, when Eliab, the oldest brother, was brought before Samuel, the very first thing Yahweh says to him is, Do not look on his appearance, nor on the height of his stature, for I have rejected him, because Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's all you can see, Samuel. That's what you look at. But I look on the heart. And God makes clear. He doesn't choose to use certain people because they look like they'll fit the part really well. He looks inside. He looks deeper into the heart of a person. So I say this all the time because I I think my heart and your heart and our memories, they're really fickle, and this belief is so ingrained in us that we need to hear it over and over again. God is not just looking at the outward appearances that you put on, that I put on. God sees our hearts, what's going on inside. He knows that. He sees those secret thoughts that we have. He knows our hidden desires, our innermost feelings, and our affections. He sees, he knows all of those things. You can hide nothing from God, and you can't fool him the way you could fool people around you. This, I think, is a really sobering statement in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Like, we look at it and go, oh, it's wonderful. God looks inside the heart. And so he chooses people based on the heart, not on the appearance. And so, yeah, maybe I'm not as strong or as big as someone else, but it's my heart that counts with God. And what we're kind of getting into is this idea of sometimes we think, well, as long as we mean well on the inside, that's, that's all that really matters. And we, and we kind of assume this default assumption about ourselves that our hearts, well, they're all really good and clean. We just kind of mess up externally, but I didn't mean it that way, or, or I meant better by it, right? 
But what we need to understand when we look at David and we look at this statement about David, it's not God saying David was a perfect guy with a perfect, pure, clean heart. Because he certainly wasn't. I mean, if you just keep turning the pages of the story of David as it unfolds here in these next several chapters, you find out that, yeah, David is probably the best earthly king that Israel has, but he is a deeply sinful man. It's not that David was, like, better compared to everyone else. And, yeah, he had a few minor mistakes, but he avoided the big gross sins. David commits atrocious sins as the king of Israel. Fails in absolutely major ways. Ways that most of us were like, whoa, that's a little far, David. (laughs) You know, I haven't done that. David's just like Saul. He's just like us and fails to obey God's word as he should have at several key points in his life. But the other thing we see about David, what we don't see happen in Saul when he's confronted by Samuel, is that David had in himself a heart of repentance that when he failed to trust God and obey God, he would repent. He would turn from those things. He would come back and seek forgiveness from the Lord. That's what set David apart, really. Not that he was perfect, not that he didn't commit the big dramatic sins. He did all of that. David did terrible things, but David repented time and time again when he failed. Which leads us to the third observation to notice about David. David's internal character or his external appearance were never enough on their own. Verse 13, God's not saying, hey, David's my guy. I'm looking at his heart. He's got it all figured out. You know what? He's going to do everything right. It's all going to be great. No, in verse 13, we we read, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And what does God do? He sends his spirit. The spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. God chose David even knowing everything about David, all of his sins, all the little broken places in his heart, and God pours his spirit out onto David so he can use David. See, what we see, again, about David's life is time and time again, he will sin, he will do terrible things, but what sets him apart from Saul is that the spirit of God draws David back into repentance time and time again. And that's what we need in our lives too, the spirit of God to work in us and draw us back to repentance when we fail to trust and obey God as we should. So what took place here as God chose David from Bethlehem should be this gloriously wonderful joy-producing thing for us to see. Really, it's part of what should make this whole Advent season so enlivening to our faith. The way that God has worked in this world is surprising and unforeseen and glorious. And knowing that should produce joy and excitement and hope in us. See, Samuel and Saul and David, they're all part of this story of salvation unfolding in history. And each of them, in their own way, were very surprising choices for God to use in the way that he did. Bethlehem is a surprising place for God to choose to use. Nobody expected anything remarkable to come out of that city. There's no reason to. I mean, again, I was there. Like, it's not an impressive place, especially if you compare it to some of the impressive places that exist in this world. So at the very end of of our trip, we got to go over to to Greece for a few days, and I got to go to Athens. Athens is an impressive city. (laughs) You go there, and you see just monument after monument after monument of how brilliant the people who lived in Athens were. How amazing of a place it was to build things and construct things and the innovation that took place there. You expected great things to come out of Athens. You don't expect great things to come out of Bethlehem. And yet God chose 
that place, right? So you and I get to look back and see how God is at work in these surprising ways throughout history. And what that should do is should lead us to greater trust for God in the future and motivate us to obey him in the present because we know he's at work in ways we can't understand, we can't foresee, but he's bringing out incredible and glorious results. But you and I, we just have to slow down a little bit in order to see it. To have God push it into our hearts, to impact our minds and thoughts and actions the way that they should do, you and I are going to have to fight against our wandering hearts and work to keep the main thing the main thing, right? You know, one of the ironic things about this whole season uh, of Advent and the way it falls this year is that Christmas Day is on a Sunday, right? And I am watching churches, and I'm having conversations with I wouldn't call them my friends, people I know (laughs) who are discussing and debating and sometimes already announcing, hey, we're not going to gather for worship on Christmas Sunday because it's Christmas. (laughs) I'm like, it's Christmas? The day we celebrate the fact that Jesus came for us and you're like, yeah, this season, it's all about Jesus. We're not going to go worship him that day. (laughs) We're going to gather. We're going to worship. If the season, as we say, is all about him, then we would certainly want to reflect that in our worship of him, right? Today, looking back at at Samuel and Saul and David from the vantage point of Christmas, we're reminded very clearly none of those guys were the true savior. None of them were who the people of Israel ultimately needed, who you and I ultimately need. Listen, our hope, it's not found in just being more like Samuel than Saul or trying to have a heart like David. Or being excited that God chooses small places and surprising people in his plan or anything else like that. The way to have true joy, the way to keep our perspective on the right thing and this time of the year is to understand the whole point of the story itself. It all leads to Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Jesus is the perfect and eternal king. Jesus is the one who has lived in the perfect power of the Spirit every single day. Jesus is the one who had perfect obedience in his life and did what nobody else could ever do. And Jesus is the one who will save all who trust and believe in him. So the joy that we are to have this Christmas season is only going to be found in knowing Jesus as our Savior and understanding the most important part of God's plan that unfolded throughout the history of the ages unfolded at that great moment where Bethlehem again is chosen by God to be the unlikely site of the greatest gift ever given to mankind. Not just a king chosen from a shepherd boy who was very unlikely and overlooked, but the true king of kings coming in and being born there. It's there that Jesus, as we'll celebrate in just a few weeks, comes into humanity, enters into this broken world to live a human life, but one of perfect obedience and completely free from sin so that he could die on a cross as the redeeming sacrifice, the atonement paid for sinners like you and me, like Samuel and Saul and David. All of us who are imperfect need a Savior, and he is the one who came in Jesus Christ. So Samuel obeys God in a moment, but Jesus obeyed God perfectly in every moment. Saul fails to follow God's word and is rejected as king of Israel. Jesus is the king of all kings who will reign forever and ever, as we heard saying this morning. 
David is this little shepherd boy who's the surprise choice to be the second king of Israel. Jesus is God the Son who surprisingly comes in and cares for you and I as a shepherd tending his sheep. Our hope this Advent season, it's not found in Samuel or Saul or David or certainly ourselves and our ability to perform. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Worship team, if you'll come and lead us in our final song today, we're going to have the opportunity to, to kind of move our eyes from this moment in Bethlehem on to that greater moment in Bethlehem when Jesus Christ came. And then from Bethlehem beyond that to Jerusalem when Jesus died and ascended to heaven to recenter our hearts and our minds, our faith on the one whom we say this season is all about. We have this gift in these next few moments of coming into the presence of God to respond to his word and his spirit at work in us. So may we look beyond Samuel and Saul and David and certainly beyond ourselves and may we focus on Jesus this morning. Let's respond to God's word today. Stand with us as we sing this final song.